Ash Davidson, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Your first novel is Damnation Spring. It is out today, and it is our August Discover pick. And thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mira. It's an honor to be here. Your book really did keep breaking my heart as I was reading. And I read a lot. That's not an easy thing to do. Would you set up Damnation Spring for listeners? Sure. So Damnation Spring is set in the Redwood Forest. This is on the far northern coast of California, just shy of the Oregon line, and it's right at the mouth of the Klamath River. So this is a temperate rainforest. It's misty. There are vines and salamanders and creeks and these chest-high ferns. And it's the story of a very tall logger named Rich Gunderson, who's obsessed with a very tall tree called the 24-7 tree. And this is a tree that's wider than a house. It's taller than the Statue of Liberty. And he mortgages everything he has to buy it and about 700 acres of trees around it. But he doesn't tell his wife. Meanwhile, Colleen, his wife, is a homemaker, but she's also a midwife in their community. And she has this encounter with an old flame who sort of plants this idea in her mind that some of the anomalies that she's witnessed midwifing and maybe even her own miscarriages might be related to herbicides the logging company uses. And this is really upsetting to her personally because she's been desperately trying to have a second child. And as you can probably imagine, it opens up a real rift in their marriage. It also threatens to ruin them financially. And it exposes all these fault lines in the community and even within her own family. You set this book in 1977. There are no cell phones. There's no Google. There's a very tight community. It's a company town. The logging company really does determine everything that happens in people's lives. You either work for the company or you don't. It's really, it's a very sort of old-fashioned story in many ways. Why did you choose the 70s for your novel? For a few reasons. One was the practical reason that my family had lived in that area in the late 70s and early 80s. So a lot of the stories that I grew up hearing from my parents, sort of this mythological Klamath of their stories, that was Klamath of the 70s and early 80s. Had it set a little later when I first started writing, and then I realized in order for certain events in the book to unroll properly. It really needed to be set in 77, 78. So it was definitely a history lesson for me as well. What were the things that you needed to adjust to make it work for 77? There were some historical events that I needed precise dates for. For example, Redwood National Park was expanded Mm -hmm. in 1978, in March of 1978. And that event needed to happen in the course of the book. So And I I sort of debated a lot about how much to fictionalize and how closely to hew to real history and real events. And that was kind of a difficult balance to strike. This is inspired by history and not just your family's stories of Klamath, but we're talking about a moment in this community's history. Rich and Colleen are fabulous characters. I'm so excited that I got to meet them in this book. But the community is really at a tipping point. Sanderson, the logging company, is making decisions that are good for the corporation, but not great for the community. And the community is really struggling with this because they need their jobs. This is a community where the men really pride themselves on taking care of their families. And they've done so for generations. Can we talk about which of your characters showed up first and sort of how you 
picked a point of entry to tell the story? Sure. Rit showed up first. And for the first two years, it was a first person novel in his perspective. And he is very quiet and kind of taciturn, very loyal. And he was kind of a difficult point of view character because he's very unlikely to say exactly what he thinks. And there were just, as I continued to write, there were a lot of things that he just didn't have access to as a man, as a man of his generation. And he has such a hard time really understanding what's going on in his wife Colleen's head. And so I ended up adding her perspective because Mm. she could walk into rooms that he couldn't walk into. The first draft of the book I wrote at Iowa, I had a first draft by November. I'd started in July. So it didn't take that long to get a first a first draft in quote. Mm-hmm. But that first draft took place over the course of three days. And so the book has changed a lot between where I started and where we ended up. Wow. You did mention in an interview that you had started by writing the ending of the book. And obviously we're not going to reveal the current ending here because it is beautiful and organic and it is exactly what Damnation Spring needs. But can we talk about starting with the end of the book? Yeah, I always do that in writing. I always start at the end. I feel like I don't know where I'm going until I have the ending. And so I almost always write the ending first. And in this case, I wrote the ending first, and then I wrote the ending five more times until I got the ending. I owe a huge debt to my editor, Kathy Belden at Scribner, who helped me find my way. So you write Damnation Spring on your own for seven years. You work on it with your agent for two. Then you work on it for a year with your editor, Kathy, who is fantastic. Can you walk us through what that process looks like for you? After about seven years, I sort of got to the point where I felt like I couldn't go any farther on my own, or I was just going to be a basket case. Like if you talk to my friends and family from the time, I was very teary because I think as a writer, you put all your eggs in one basket for seven years. And I think it's very present in your mind that like this might not work out, that you're doing this thing for the joy of it. But when you're actually have your sleeves rolled up and are in it, you sort of lose sight of the joy, or at least I did at moments. And I got to the point where I felt like I could work on this book that I'd worked on for seven years. I could work on it for another 20 years by myself, but I needed another pair of eyes. And I was extremely fortunate that Chris Paris Lamb, my agent, who I'd met at Iowa years before, and I had kept his email over many years. And so I wrote him an email to say, like, here's the email and the email chain to prove I'm not a basket case. I know you don't remember me, but I did write a novel in the third person, as you suggested. Would you look at it? And I sent it to him. I didn't hear from him for almost five months, I think, where I think like a normal person would accept that that's a no and move on. And I just, I'm an average person in almost every way, but I have an above average ability to sort of dwell in that territory of hope that borders delusion. And so I just waited and he wrote back and offered to represent me and then dove into some very helpful and serious developmental edits. Mm -hmm. And Chris and Sarah Balling at Gurner were both really hands-on and helpful. And it was just, it was such a relief in a way to realize that I had something that someone else 
thought would work if I was willing to put in the time. And then after two years, I had a two-week residency at McDowell and I took two weeks off work and I went there and I worked 13 hours a day and Chris sent it out and he sent it out on a Thursday afternoon. And by Monday, the editors were calling. So it was really like a dream come true. And Kathy Belden and Nan Graham at Scribner scared the hell out of me the first time I talked to them. But it was very clear that they saw the book clearly and they saw what I was trying to do with it and help me get there. And I think Kathy is the perfect editor because she can say a really tough thing, but she can say it in a really gentle way so that you cannot be wounded by it, but you can take the truth in it and move forward with your work without losing any time licking your wounds. Damnation Spring really reminded me of Steinbeck as I was reading. And it's partially that balance between your writing about the company town And also this insider-outsider perspective. I mean, we see over the course of the novel, what happens if you don't toe the line in this community? We see what happens to a couple called Helen and Carl. And Helen is very vocal in saying that she believes the herbicides are hugely problematic, that she has lost a child at birth. And she knows it's because of the herbicides and she will not play along and she will not put her husband's job with the logging company first. And it's really traumatic what happens to them. So you're balancing all of these different points of view, even though Rich and Colleen are telling us the story and their son Chubb also is giving us his perspective too. How do you as the writer find the best balance? How do you find the weight that you give each piece of the story? Because you don't want to write a polemic and you've got to be truthful to the experiences of these characters that you don't necessarily share. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I certainly went in with my own views on logging in the Redwoods and aerial herbicide use. I always knew that this was the book I wanted to write because when we lived in Klamath, we relied on a creek behind the house for drinking water, similar to Rich and Colleen set up in the book. And my parents were so concerned about herbicide contamination in that creek that they stopped drinking the water and they eventually left Klamath. And so I had that very strongly in my mind when I went into the research. And then I made a few research trips out to Klamath as an adult. And I actually interviewed and sat down with loggers and mill workers. And when I first got there, it's a it's a much smaller town now than it was in the 70s because the logging industry has contracted. And it was pretty difficult to get people to speak with me. And my mom came with me and just sort of out of desperation, we finally went to this community dinner in Klamath. And we walked in and it was mostly seniors and you could just hear the heads turn. And so we kind of awkwardly like got our tickets and went through the line and then just stood there with our trays. And it felt very much like being in junior high, like, oh, no, where are we going to sit? And then just by chance, this woman recognized my mom because they'd worked together at Margaret Keating Elementary School 28 years before. And she took us over to her table and she introduced me to a logger. And he had cut a lot of old growth, but he wouldn't talk to me inside. So we went out to the parking lot and it was raining and it was like he didn't even notice the rain. And so we stood out there and leaned against the hood of his truck and he talked for two hours. And the next time I interviewed him, he brought this 
huge photo album of his crew cutting these giant old growth trees. And I, I mean, I work in an office. I don't have any photographs of my workday. And I was really touched by the fact that even in the moment, as this team of guys was doing this work, they recognized that their kids weren't going to get the opportunity to see trees and to fall trees this size. And they were memorializing that. And at the very end, I finally got up the courage to ask him about the chemical sprays, which was why I was there. And he told me he'd been sprayed over while he was logging and how it affected him, his breathing, his respiratory system, his skin, his eyes. And that just totally disrupted this tidy narrative that I had in my mind that loggers didn't care about the consequences of their industry. And of course, human beings are a lot more complicated. And I think actually sitting down with someone and talking made me realize that there was a lot more to that story. And I think that we as a culture tend to assume that people who work in extractive industry are somehow responsible for any of the suffering that it brings them, you know, as if anybody signs up for contaminated water or cancer, just trying to feed their families. And I think that was an assumption of my own that really needed to be challenged. And I think that it reminded me not to judge my characters. I really did try to, to write a book where I don't take sides, where I think everyone from the National Park Service to the environmental movement to the, the timber and wood products industry is going to be a little bit dissatisfied. And I think that that's good. There's a clear connection in your narrative between the impact of the logging on the community and the members of the community, and even the characters that we know we're supposed to dislike. I have to say, I understand Eugene. I don't necessarily think I would want to have an extended relationship with Eugene. I think I could probably sit down and maybe have a meal with him and then be glad that I was moving on to the next thing. But Eugene does have a heart. It is in the right place. He doesn't have the tools to behave differently. He's got six children mm -hmm. and they're living closer to hard scrabble than he would like. He's got a good job. And yet he plays a role in the narrative that really does kind of connect everyone's economic situations to the reality of their world. And yet I never once felt like, oh, this guy again. Oh, right. Now the action moves forward. It's just, this is Eugene. But mudslides and birth defects and miscarriages, the connection is clear as an outsider. And yet you're asking your characters to wrestle with their economic status and their housing. And even Rich, it turned out the house that his grandfather built was now not his because of the way the parkland worked. Yeah, the parcel of land that he's on was part of legislative takings with the expansion of Redwood National Park in 1978. So people who lived in that area were basically bought out, is my understanding. And they had either 25 years or until the homeowner and the homeowner's spouse passed. And then the property wouldn't convey to the next generation, it would go to the park. And a lot of those real homes in that area have since been knocked down and hauled away. And if you visit that forest today, you would never know that babies were born there and dishes broken and that a guy laid awake all night listening to a tree creak to see if it would fall on the house. People's whole lives in those places are not visible 
to the human eye anymore. But the cabin my own parents lived in was located on that land. And so we went back to try to find it. And I thought for sure there would be a pipe, a piece of foundation. There was nothing. And it was kind of heartening in the sense that like that isn't that long ago. It was torn down in the mid 80s. It was kind of heartening to see how quickly the forest could retake that land and come back. And it will never be an old growth forest like the redwood forest that was originally in that spot. But it is a different type of forest and it's alive and it's full of blackberries and ferns and salal and it's so dense like my parents to go walk up to the creek to clear out their pipe my dad used to use a machete because that's how dense the forest is and it is like a wall of vegetation you have to physically force your way through it it's clear that rich and colleen and chubb are connected to the land rich has taught chubb as a five-year-old to recite the landscape so he knows exactly where he is at any given moment. And it's really, these are beautiful moments when they pop up in the book and there's this tiny person saying, well, if you turn here and then you go to that river and then you walk to this creek and then you walk to that tree and you walk to that rock and then you're home. And he knows exactly where he is. And it's really kind of great. Do you ever think about what happens to Chubb after, he's five though. We don't see him as a teenager. We don't see him as an adult. He doesn't become a logger. That's clear, but does he stay? Does he go? I have thought about that quite. I've thought about a number of the characters and what happens mm-hmm. to them when the book ends. And I think I'd rather not say because I'm very curious to know what readers will think. And I don't want to impose my own. I have a very precise idea of what I think happens to each of them, but I'd be curious to hear what other people think. And to loop back to your comment about Eugene, I do think that. The choices that Eugene sees in front of him, the choices that any of us see in our lives, I think have a lot to do with where you're born and who you're born to. And I think that Eugene does a lot of troubling things, and he's a complex character, and I could see readers not liking him or thinking of him as a villain. And I I think that part of his complexity is because of the situation he was born into, there are a lot of choices that just he doesn't see for himself. And I think that that's true in a lot of extractive industry. And I think this frustration that outsiders sometimes have with people who work in industries that are declining or maybe causing some sort of environmental damage. There's this attitude, why don't you just move? And I think that when you're in it, when this job has been your livelihood and your life and your way of life and your ability to provide a good life for your family, you can't just pick up and move. There are plenty of good reasons why a coal miner in West Virginia isn't going to pick up and move west to work on a solar farm. And I think that the culture that grows up around extractive industry, like logging, is very integral to Eugene's identity. And it's really distressing, I think, for people who work in industries that have environmental impacts and that we shouldn't discount sort of the psychic toll of what it would mean to accept that something that you're doing might be harming the people who you love most. And so I think it's very difficult. 
for Eugene, even for Rich, to even entertain the idea that the same job that puts food on his table and clothes on his family's backs might be preventing Colleen from carrying a pregnancy to term. That's deeply distressing for him personally. And I think, too, it's really easy to dismiss Eugene as a villain, but that implies he has power that he does not have. He's being told by people who he reports to, essentially, to go do this and protect this. And he's being directed in a way that I don't know if he would necessarily choose to act if he wasn't feeling threatened. That's a complex idea, I think, because on some level, I think you always have a choice to do Mm -hmm. something. When you know something is wrong and you do it anyway, you're making that choice. I do think there are a number of mitigating circumstances in his case. And when you're in that kind of economic need and you rely wholly on this company and its bosses, the cost of going against the grain and the power differential make it pretty difficult to make the right choice, I think. And I do wonder how he'll grapple with those choices later in life. There's one point where he drives up to get paid and he's got his children in the car and he's late because he's that guy. He just can't get it together. And he's late and he's banging on the door and he's saying, please let me, you know, and he's trying to be charming and funny and smart about it. I think everyone's encountered a Eugene at some point, regardless of where you live, there's someone has been a Eugene in your life and ultimately gets what he needs, takes care of his kids. It's clear that he loves his family, but yeah, he's. He's complicated. On the other hand, you've got Uncle Lark, who is one of the best characters I have met in a novel in a really long time. Clearly loves Rich, even though he feels responsible for the death of Rich's father, which happened many, many years in the past. So again, we're not spoiling anything here. Where did Lark come from? I love Lark. He's All of the characters in the novel are are invented, but Lark is kind of an amalgam of both my grandfathers and a great uncle who was, none of them were loggers. My great uncle was a car salesman, but I ended up cutting a lot of the dirty jokes that were included in his point of view. They were, they were a little too racy, but I had a lot of fun with him because I think he's an overtly affectionate character, which is not true for a lot of the other characters. And he, he brings a lot of history of the place and of logging and of Rich's family in. And he's really the only person in the book who's known Rich before his married life. He knew Rich as a little boy. He saw Rich as a baby. And so he brings sort of a lens to to Rich. And Rich has lost both his parents young, as have many of the characters in the book. And Lark is in every essential way, a surrogate father. And I think even at the end of Lark's life, he's thinking about Rich's future and his family and his responsibility to Rich because of his role in his father's death. He's also walking around with a great deal of grief. His wife and his sons have died. You know, Lark's an example of a man who, even though he jokes around and he is in many ways comic relief for a lot of people. He jokes around, but he is very in touch with his heart. He's got a really big heart. And he's grieving for his wife and their sons. So here's Lark with his big, expansive heart. 
And Rich is pretty locked down. He loves his wife. He loves his son. He loves logging. He loves his community. He loves Lark. But as you've said before, he's a quiet guy. And on the flip side of that, we've got Lark. And on another side, we've got Daniel, a character who's left the community. He's Yurok. He was Colleen's high school boyfriend. And he comes back and he's really disruptive for good reason. He's the one who's studying the herbicide and the impact on the salmon and the community. And he's the one who's putting together very openly the connection between the miscarriages and the birth defects and the herbicide. And there are plenty of people in the community who don't want to hear it. But he reconnects with Colleen and things get complicated. So Rich and Colleen, Lark, their families can trace their ancestry back to this area four or five generations, but that's nothing compared to the Yurok people who've lived along the banks of the Klamath and in the redwood forest since time immemorial. And so Daniel's connection to that river and the salmon fishery are very deep and very old. And he becomes interested in the herbicides because of the impacts of the logging industry on the salmon fishery. And this is a this is an issue still to this day on the Klamath River, where the Yurok tribe has been working for decades to remove dams on the Klamath and, and protect that fishery, which is a really important part of their culture and their identity. And so Daniel, I think Colleen is drawn to because she has this she has this history with him and she can be open with him in a way that she can't with Rich. Rich and Colleen are not the same generation. He's almost 20 years her senior and he's a very good husband in many ways. He's a good provider. He's loyal. He's calm. He's fair. But it's very difficult for her to speak openly about her feelings with him and She's had a series of miscarriages and the last one almost killed her and Rich does not want to lose her. He doesn't want to try again and she just cannot let go of wanting another child. And so when she encounters Daniel and he offers up a possible explanation, that's really difficult for her to to reconcile, I think, with her life with Rich because she so desperately wants another child and and it really puts her at odds with her husband. Daniel represents a number of things for Colleen. He's the most educated person in the entire book. And he's also a person who has access to the larger sort of scientific and academic literature in the sense that like he's not afraid of those worlds and he knows how to ask a question and he's comfortable with scientific inquiry. And he just has an sort of an intellectual world that is completely foreign to Colleen. I don't think she would know where to start. I think she'd be afraid to walk into the library. She'd be afraid to talk to the librarian. She wouldn't know where to start in looking at the, the scientific studies that Daniel is reviewing. That is not a knock on her intelligence at all. She has a different type of intelligence and serves a really important role in her community, bringing babies into the world. But Daniel has this ability in the novel to translate this very complex scientific information for local community members and help them understand how something that seems completely unrelated to their daily lives is impacting them intimately in ways that they're only just beginning to understand. 
And one of the women who's beginning to finally understand what's happening in their community is Colleen's sister, Enid. She's got six kids. She's married to Eugene. She knows who Eugene is and she loves him, but she knows he's a handful. But she's also beginning to struggle. They get some news about one of their children. And she's sort of always known in the back of her brain that something wasn't right. And she's watching her sister struggle. And now she's even coming to a point where she can't deny that something's wrong. And it's an eye-opening moment. I mean, one of the things that your characters really, really struggle with is this sense of denial and this sense of this can't be bad for me. How does a woman like Enid survive that kind of news and that kind of understanding? I think there's a certain stoicism in a lot of the women in the book, because this is a time where they're not very far removed from an era where a woman couldn't get a credit card without her husband's signature. And Colleen goes to the bank to try to figure out what their financial situation is. And the bank teller won't share that information with her. It's go ask your husband. And so the power dynamic in relationships, especially when all of the economic power in almost all of the marriages in the book, that economic power lies with the man in the relationship. And so the domestic sphere where women are wielding their own type of power is sort of governed by its own rules. And I think that the men have a certain solidarity and they have these very strong friendships and networks of support that come from working on a, on a logging crew in the woods where your lives literally depend on someone else's good cutting hand on their quick and steady judgment. And so they leave the home every day and they're in these sort of surrogate family structures where they all look out for each other. But the women in the book, for the most part, stay home and they're responsible for taking care of their worlds. And so I think that in order to survive, they've developed a certain type of stoicism and a sense that God doesn't give you more than you can handle. You find a way through it. And I think that's probably what Enid does. Like at this point, the damage is done for Elsie. And so the best she can do is love her children and take care of them the best way that she knows how. And I think from her point of view, she doesn't have any power against that. This may have gotten cut from the book, but at one point she described it as like trying to fight off the ocean with a knife, that there's just nothing that you can do except accept that this is where you are. And I, but I do think that that understanding and that revelation is a type of grief that doesn't hit all at once. Like it takes a while to absorb and percolate down into her consciousness. And I think that's something that as she gets older will haunt her and certainly haunt her every time that she looks at Elsie. Did anything surprise you while you were writing Damnation Spring? Yes, I think that was one of the most fun things about going from writing short stories primarily to writing a novel, which is realizing that you can change something and then watch it ripple out through the entire course of the book. And I think that I also didn't realize how late in the process you could change something big. Colleen didn't become a midwife until two days before I sent the final revision of the novel to my agent. So a month before that book went out, she was not a midwife. And it was a change that I had been sort of mulling over for several years. I'd read a very interesting story in Rolling Stone about the oil and gas industry in the Uinta Basin. 
in northern Utah and a midwife who had been the first one to piece together that something isn't right here. And that always stuck with me that like a midwife would know. But I thought, oh, you're too far along. You can't make a change like that. No, but that's not true. Two days before I could. And so that was really magical. And it made it hard to let go of the book, to be honest, because there are still things that I think, oh, if I changed that, that would have been like dominoes through the entire book. It's a long book. And it's a book that takes place over the course of one calendar year, but you don't get all 365 days. But I wrote all 365 days. And so I think it surprised me that you know, I'll talk to someone about the book and they'll ask a question. And in my mind, that's very obvious because that's on December 7th. But December 7th has been cut from the book. So the reader doesn't know that. But that was really fun as a writer to be able to follow your characters down all kinds of roads that don't eventually end up in the book. Like Daniel could be his own book. He has a child. He has his own storyline. But none of that ended up fitting in the 440-page book that that is published. And so I think that surprised me. And it also, I think that I love my characters. And so it was really hard to see something bad happen to them. And I think it surprised me how much that affected me. And there were many times where my impulse was to spare my characters, but I felt a real responsibility to the people who really encountered herbicide spraying and suffered the consequences. And for every incident in the book, there's a correlate in real life that is worse. And so when I got to those moments where I thought, oh, I really don't want this, I don't want this person to have to go through this experience, I tried to remember and to honor those real experiences and know that like in real life, people don't get to choose And so my characters should have to deal with the consequences as well. It's 440 pages, but they fly by. I got so involved in everyone's life. Rich, Colleen, Enid, Eugene. I'm leaving out some names. Lark. I really, I was so involved in all of the different pieces of their lives. And again, I think this goes back to the fact that you have so much compassion for all of your characters. And it's what you just said, where you love them all and you have to let them do what they're going to do. So I know I mentioned Steinbeck earlier, but who are some of the other writers who've influenced you as a reader and a writer? I loved East of Eden. I read it in a week during summer vacation as a teenager. And I love the big epic scope of Steinbeck's novels and how closely they examine issues of class and social hierarchy. So one of my favorite books of all time is Angle of Repose by Wallace Stegner. And I'm very drawn to books that are set in the West in sort of the big open landscapes of the West, which feel like home, and books that take place outside. I'm a huge fan of books that are set in more rural places. Louise Erdrich is one of my favorite writers. I just finished The Roundhouse, which is just a masterpiece. And I love Westerns of all kinds. And I especially love some of the Westerns that have come out in the last few years that are different from like the True Grit type Lonesome Dove Westerns that I grew up on. Like I adored C. Pam Zhang's How Much of These Hills is Gold. And I'm really excited to see this new wave of Westerns coming because it's 
exactly the landscape and the type of story that I'm drawn to as a reader. And this is not that type of book. It's not a big adventure set out on a journey book, but I really, as a reader, those are the books I take the most joy in. Is there anything we've missed? We've covered a lot of ground, but is there anything we've missed that you really want listeners to know about Damnation Spring? Very early in the research process. Mm -hmm. I found a book called A Bitter Fog by Carol Venstrom, which is a nonfiction book, a true story about a community in Oregon and the grassroots struggle to protect the environment and the community from herbicides that were sprayed on them from the air. And Carol is a hugely inspirational leader in the anti-spray movement. And If the themes of Damnation Spring resonate with you and you're at all interested in the nonfiction history behind it, I would highly recommend checking out A Bitter Fog by Carol Von Strom, which is a beautiful nonfiction book and memoir about a community in Oregon fending off the aerial spraying of herbicides. And it's recently been the inspiration behind a PBS documentary called The People versus Agent Orange, which is available for streaming on independent lens, and I would highly recommend it. I need to check out both of those things. Ash Davidson, your novel is Damnation Spring. It is out today. Thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Thank you so much for having me. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 